Welcome to Chief Evangelist. I'm your host, Ethan Butte. I'm on a mission to explore and understand the role of the Chief Evangelist and the movement behind it. How should founders, investors, and C-suites be thinking about it? How does it benefit the company? Which companies and markets need evangelism most? What does the work involve? What does success look like? And who's a good fit as a chief evangelist? That's what we're exploring at chiefevangelist.com and in conversations like this one, which is brought to you by Ringmaster Conversational Marketing and their evangelist-powered podcasting package. Learn more at ringmaster.com. Today, we're learning from an evangelism and social selling pioneer who's developed a following of nearly a quarter million people on LinkedIn. She's a true leader in the B2B software space, and she built her career at companies like Salesforce, Eloqua, Oracle, and Marketo. She's a GTM advisor to, board member of, and investor in too many other SaaS businesses to name. Jill Rowley, welcome to Chief Evangelist. I'm excited to be here, Ethan. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I loved our initial conversations. Uh, you reached out. You're like, we've been talking about evangelism for a long time. And I want to get into that. But before we do, what's the most important job of an evangelist? It's tough to actually narrow it down to the most important job of an evangelist. But when I think about a true evangelist, they're a catalyst. They're a catalyst for change. Um, they're a spark. They help spark and inspire. Um, they help influence. They help educate. Um, and they earn trust along the way. And so really it's, it's about change. It's being a catalyst for change. Love it. And I hear in the way you describe that, I also like the use of the word true there. I, I hear in the way that you describe that a very human to human experience. Um, is that true? If so, why? And why don't we prioritize it? Yeah, I, I, it's not easily measured. So that's the challenge in the world that we live in. Ethan, in B2B SaaS and B2B software in technology. Um, and with the advent of software like marketing automation, Eloqua, Marketo, HubSpot, um, we now have the tools to be able to measure the things that um, the activities that um, the machines are doing. So ads and emails and uh, phone calls and LinkedIn messages and um, so we have these tools to measure these things. And with that, we've gone too far. We've gone too far measuring the things that are easily measured and not remembering that at the end of the day, it really is about uh, human trust, relationships. Uh, and, and those are just a lot harder than they're a lot harder to measure. Yeah, they really are. And so, I mean, what I hear in that a little bit is this idea of um, the operating model above all. Um, we need predictable revenue. We need to know how the revenue is happening so that we can take the three people who are doing this set of activities for this measurable outcome now and hold all the unit economics as we go to nine and as we go to 18 and as we go to 36. And like that whole mindset, I feel like you were in the space actively. Um, did I capture that right approximately? And what, in your experience, what has been the level of respect or understanding or acceptance of these more immeasurable qualities like trust and confidence that drive all of the measurable outcomes? Yeah, what you described is linear, right? You, you described a, a progression and a forward progression. You didn't talk about going from two to four to six to four, right? From lead to inquiry to opportunity to... Uh, commit to close one, that's the linear. And we all know 
that that isn't the way it actually happens, right? Things are very messy. And uh, they are, uh, there's like this, this we, this web and these uh, multiple sections of um, intersection. And uh, it, it is, it's more organic than it is forced. Um, and so when we step back and we actually look at how does the world really work, and when we talk about like purchase um, and decision making, it isn't a linear thing anymore. And we're, we're inundated and we're distracted all the time. Like I can't even complete a purchase on Amazon because I see a product and then I go and look at it somewhere else. And I read an article about what are the top, you know, mattress toppers for dorm rooms. And we're, it's, it's really like too much information. And at the end of the day, I just want to, I want to call someone whose kid went to college last year. And I want to ask her, what mattress topper did you get? And did you actually like it? Right. And so, I mean, gosh, we could go down a whole, I mean, that was a great example. And it, I want to go down this road of like why we can't trust reviews anymore. Even on trustworthy sites, we want to go to the person who we know either directly or as a connection of someone who we already know, like, and trust, maybe even love uh, and, and trust implicitly and love unconditionally, you know, them or someone close to them and get a story. And in that it's, it's interesting because, you know, science would suggest the opinions of 2018 people would be better than one, but that's how the way that we work. Okay. And some of what you shared there too, I was thinking like definitely a social seller, this nonlinear piece and all the way that it connects. When did these terms, and you could take them in whatever order you want, but like, when did social selling come onto your radar as a term? Not like when were you doing it, but like, when did, when was that a name for something? When was evangelism a name for something for you? I started my career at Salesforce in 2000. I was one of the first hundred employees. And a software as a service wasn't a term and cloud definitely wasn't a term. Um, so just, just putting some historical perspective of, of how tenured uh, I am. At, at Eloqua, I think in terms of social selling, which ones, for me, I was very fortunate that my buyer was marketing and me as someone who really needed to understand and advocate and guide and coach and be a Sherpa for my buyer, even though I was just a quarter carrying sales rep. Um, it meant that I really needed to understand the world in which they lived in. And when social media was a channel that marketing was now tasked with, I needed to jump in and understand what social media was. Um, my buyer's marketing, they were, they were in social, they were on Twitter, they were on LinkedIn. They were trying to figure all of this out. And so I was right there with them figuring it out as well. Um, what I realized is that marketing is more about media and reach. Um, and, and sales is more about um, relevancy and relationships. And so instead of thinking about it as social media, which is what my marketing um, customers were thinking about, I was applying that to the world of selling, which was social networks. Right. So it's it's a it's a network interconnected rather than a a, um, a megaphone, which is the, the media channel. So and, and, and LinkedIn, I was one of the first million members on LinkedIn and LinkedIn happened to be an early Eloqua customer. So there's a lot of things that I'm just fortunate. Right. I say optimize for opportunity and luck and put yourself in the path of opportunity and luck. 
And so when I saw LinkedIn and as a salesperson selling pre-LinkedIn, um, I was always looking for who, who within the organization, who within the company I needed to talk to. And back then it was corporate websites. And so the only way that you could find out people's names were to go to the corporate website and on the corporate website, they only listed the management team. So I was very limited in terms of finding, okay, well, who's the, who's the director of sales or the VP of sales or who's in charge of sales operations or who, you know, who does, um, uh, territory planning. And so from out of office emails, I started to see additional names and I was always trying to find more people to communicate with, to create that water cooler effect so that multiple people within an organization were talking. And when I saw LinkedIn, I was initially like, this isn't a resume. This is a network. This is a database of the people at the companies that I need to, to talk to. So for me, the, 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 the discipline, the way I use these um, tools, these channels, these networks, um, it, 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 it was different from just calling and emailing and uh, using these mainly initially for research so that I could be more relevant, so that I could build better relationships that drive revenue. And it, and it LinkedIn helped to form the term social selling. And to me, it just made sense, right? Using the social networks to um, not to do the selling, but to do the things that lead up to the buying, right? To do the things that lead up to your buyer buying, not to do the things that help you like sell to the buyer. Yeah, really good. I mean, something that just this idea of you going to corporate websites, probably doing some outreach and seeing if you can get an introduction from someone to someone else, start plotting out your own tree of like how the organization is set up. I, I personally feel like, and I might be a little bit old fashioned this way. I feel like you having done that, just generally speaking, manual type of work, like the hard work, the grind work, the like hands dirty work was a net benefit as you encountered new, more powerful tools that in some way eliminated the need for that work, but you're having done it and thought about it and worked through it and strategized how to get what you needed before you had something that made it easier to have what you needed was a benefit to you. And I feel like that's something that we're increasingly losing. Any thoughts on that? I, I 100% agree. And it is, I think it first starts with the mindset of understanding that it isn't about the clothes, that it's really about how do you make someone else successful? And when you make someone else successful, that comes back. Um, it, it might not be a, you know, a one-to-one, -one, right? I make someone successful. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to get something back from them, like an intro or a referral or, but, but the more you do it, um, the more you increase your odds that it does um, loop back around and it becomes this, this, um, this flywheel is, if you want to put it in software terms, right? It's the multiplier effect, um, but it's the mindset of solving a problem, not selling a product. Um, and over time, really in my mind, realizing that your network is your network. And I talk about this discipline of always connecting, but not necessarily with everyone, right? So understand where that connection makes sense for everybody involved 
and, and being disciplined about making the connections um, where there's value to be added, right? Yeah, really good. The what what isn't social selling? I mean, I you just spoke to some of the discipline and philosophy and um, good judgment, editorial judgment required to do this in a way that's helpful to all people so that you can build your reputation and build your network in a way that is actually truly fruitful. I feel like I see a lot of bad activity under the guise of social selling. So when you think about like the ugliest or the worst, I'm not just, I'm not looking to beat up tactics or beat up people, but I want to like create, in, in part, you can define something well by defining what it isn't, not just what it is. Um, so I'd love for you to take a swing at that. Yeah. There's so many things that social selling isn't. And I'll, I'll, I'll take it back to when I was evangelizing social selling, which I don't anymore because uh, I don't even think social selling is like the thing anymore. It's, it's, we, we needed to call it something different so that people would think differently, but there's not a book on the shelf that you, you want to take off and read about social selling anymore because it, it has, it has changed. Um, the mindset hasn't changed, but the, the, the channels and the methods and the tactics have. Um, it isn't um, uh, more connections, right? Uh, it isn't um, you're a BDR and you go to LinkedIn and you send a generic invite. That's that's not social selling. And and more often than not, that will not even be accepted. The invite won't, um, but it will also create a negative a negative impression. Um, it isn't, and, and man, I have some social selling experts who copy and paste uh, a, a invite to a webinar that they're going to be on or a podcast that they've been recorded on and they copy and paste it into a LinkedIn note and, 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 and think that that's social selling. That's, that's just old school, generic, I don't want to be on your list. Um, that's not social selling. Um, winding it back to, I talked a lot about content curation because I, I think that salespeople are better at curating than creating content, but social selling isn't buying a platform at the corporate level and loading up corporate content and then having all of your salespeople on um, post, have it automated, post that piece of content on their LinkedIn profile at the same time to get that, 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 you know, that, that, that amplifier effect. That's not social selling. It, it, it isn't a corporate, um, uh, it isn't also about just your product. It, it is really, um, I think it isn't even just, I used to see people go and endorse people on their LinkedIn profile when they didn't even know them, they hadn't had a conversation, just trying to get someone's attention. That's not social selling either. Those are, those are tactics that um, aren't human, right? They're, they're not in the benefit of actual like, engagement and, and customer stuff. Really good list. Uh, and so much of it just fit. It's just a new form of uh, mass blasting. There's nothing you can talk about across your entire sales organization to the public at large besides your product, really. And it's one of the inherent flaws of that approach is that um, it's just a new way to mass blast. Okay, so you were an evangelist for this. So I'm going to guess 
that you were doing this partly by design, partly by default. It was probably just natural to you at some level. You saw something in this opportunity. You behaved against your imagination. It started to come to life. You probably refined and iterated your approach of a set of strategies and tactics that we'll generally call social selling. And then at some point, you are out in front on this idea, and then you wind up, I guess, evangelizing it because it's forward-looking. It needs, you already mentioned new language. It needed some new language. It needed to be spread. More people should be doing this. Talk about uh, the ways that you evangelize social selling. You don't need to detail it, but just, you know, characterize it a little bit. And did you, what in your mind when you were teaching other people about it, did you call it enablement? Like, was this enablement function to teach other sellers how to socially sell? Or like, what language did you have around it? Sure. So when I was a rep at Eloqua and I was asked to present uh, on social selling at one of our QBRs, and that was probably in early 2011, I would say. And I didn't have a PowerPoint. I didn't have a training course. I didn't have a framework. I didn't have a, a methodology. And so when I, when I got up at the QBR to, to, to do this session on social selling, it actually didn't land because I didn't have any of that in place to teach others how to actually do this. And it wasn't until I, um, had a conversation with the authors of the Challenger Sale, uh, Matt Dixon and Brent Adamson. Uh, they also wrote the Challenger Customer, which I think is an equally important book, if not more so, because if we don't know the customer and understand how the customer works, then how do we know how to optimize the way that we sell to the customer? So everyone talks about the Challenger Sale, but the challenger customer and understanding and knowing that customer is, is the more important um, way to approach it. So when they were, when we were having a conversation with them about where I was having a conversation with them about social selling, the question they asked was what, okay, so let's talk about revenue. Let's talk about pipeline. How much of your revenue, um, your pipeline comes from your social selling? I'm like, well, I can't really categorize what I do into those buckets, but actually the bigger question, the better question is how much of Eloqua's pipeline and revenue came from my social selling, my evangelism, right? So I wasn't just, um, I, I was doing social selling, not just for accounts and people within those accounts, but in the market and trying to educate the market on modern marketing, on data-driven, personalized, automated, measurable, digital marketing, revenue marketing, not lead-generating marketing. And so that's, that, that, that's where it started to really, and, and bragging, um, CEB, which was the organization that Brent and Matt were with, they have all their frameworks and models, which I love frameworks and models. They didn't have one for social selling. What they did, though, in their workbook for their head of, of sales um, uh, work, work, uh, workshops is they had my picture and a, a write-up on me as an example of someone who did social selling. 
And that was another like moment in time of, wow, when you have CEB, one of the, you know, the, the most reputable analyst research consulting firms writing about social selling back in 2012 and presenting me as an example of that, that was, again, like this is, this is a movement, right? It's becoming something meaningful. And when you want to actually scale something, you have to have frameworks and models. You have to have language and definitions. And when you're talking about getting salespeople to do something, it requires enablement. So to the question around enablement, um, when I, when we were acquired, Alpha was acquired by Oracle and I got into this role in the enablement team, I had to then go and learn a lot about sales enablement because I'd never been in the function. I'd never been in sales enablement. And so I had to learn all the other things that enablement was responsible for to then figure out how would they prioritize social selling in the, in the, in the, you know, in the grand scheme of everything that they had to, were responsible for. And then from a tools perspective, right, what are the tools that can support social selling? So understanding how that fits into the overall tech stack as well. So it's just this natural evolution and maturity of something that a couple people are doing that actually becomes a discipline and a way of um, a way of uh, earning the attention of your potential customers, your customers, your partners, and the smarty pants people in your buyer's world. Yeah, so good. There, um, gosh, there's so much I could react to there, but I would love for you to talk about that transition from being an active seller and, oh, by the way, I'm sharing with other people what I'm doing to someone recognizing that this is important enough that you should be in an enablement team, teaching it to lots of other people in order to scale the benefits, scale the understanding, scale the effect. Like, how did that process go from uh, being a salesperson practicing these things, which, by the way, is a characteristic of all good evangelists. I've done all of the things that I'm talking about, or a lot of them. And so you can trust me in a different way. I have my own stories to tell, not just the stories that I'm curating, et cetera. Um, that was certainly true of you. So how did you get pulled into the enablement team? And how did you feel about that? I mean, I also feel like, um, I mean, you used the word meaningful before. Like, I feel like this was important to you and that it was important for you to teach to other people. And so there's, you know, I can see this um, desire to set down the quota and go into this other role to evangelize this thing that had been so helpful to you? Two things. One, getting clarity on my purpose. And it really, I, I, I wrote it down as elevating the sales profession and enriching other people's careers. And in terms of elevating the sales profession, I saw how using social networks to do better research, to be more relevant, to build better relationships, that putting the customer and understanding the customer, uh, championing the customer, being the customer's best advocate, that you could do that through social as a network. Um, more easily than you could do other things, right? So the clarity of um, wanting to elevate the profession, not just continue to be the number one sales rep, um, and looking at the things that I did that lit me up, which a lot of it was 
um, speaking and um, spreading the message in the room, not just in the social networks. Uh, I had actually hit an evangelist role when I was at Eloqua and writing up all the things that I had done outside of my quota hearing responsibility. And at that point, they wanted to move me, if I wanted, to move into marketing. And the role would have not really been, it wouldn't have helped me achieve the goal of elevating the sales profession. So it only came to be when Eloqua was acquired by Oracle that, and I wasn't going to stay at Oracle. There was no way. I, I had no interest in being on Oracle's payroll and being an employee at Oracle. But the president, chief revenue officer of Eloqua at the time, he was having the conversation with Oracle about who was moving over and learning about the Oracle Sales Academy that was being designed. And it was initially being designed for hiring recent college graduates. And we, we hired, when I was there, 450 college graduates, 450, 450 college graduates. And we designed a 10-week program to onboard them to, um, you know, they're new to business, they're, they're new to um, software technology, uh, they're new to Oracle, they're new to sales. And it was the opportunity to, to these young, very impressionable, haven't, hadn't developed the bad habit, right? To, to get and design a program for them. Um, but what I want to make sure is clear is I, I was focused on the why. I was focused on the aha moment, the um, not the what and the how, right? So I, I didn't build training curriculum. I actually brought in a partner uh, to, to design the, the social selling training curriculum. And I didn't like pick the software that we were going to use. Uh, I worked with the team who you were better equipped to do that. So my role at Oracle, when I got to create it, it didn't exist, which is what evangelists want to do. You don't want to go take over a role that already exists. And so that was the opportunity. Um, Oracle had the, the resources. I, I knew I wasn't going to stay there. I knew that I wanted to go and travel and speak and have a bigger impact than even just the 23,000 salespeople at, at Oracle. So I knew that I could go learn about um, sales enablement and do speaking and get my name out there more broadly. Uh, and that's, and that was, that was why I, why I took the role at, at Oracle. Um, it certainly wasn't for the money because I didn't make a lot of money doing that at Oracle, but it was for the opportunity to actually start to, to, to really have an impact on the entire sales profession. So good. And spoken as a true evangelist, it's interesting. I've had a couple of conversations now. I don't remember off the top of my head which ones were on this podcast and which ones were just other conversations I had about sales folks moving into evangelism roles in part because of what you just mentioned. If you're a top performer and you have the skill and the enthusiasm and the passion and the, the charisma to evangelize effectively and you move into an evangelist role, you're probably taking a pay cut to do it in general. I mean, and so, so the salesperson to evangelist is a really interesting challenge. Um, we don't need to dwell on that now, but uh, I love that you were able to start with the 450 fresh out of school people in terms of uh, elevating the, the, the field in general and impacting 
people's careers directly. So you took a form of an evangelist role at Marketo as well. So, so talk about that transition a little bit too. Yeah, I would say that too. Before I evangelized social selling, I was actually an evangelist for the B2B marketing automation, MarTech, demand generation as a function, marketing ops as a function. Like that's actually what I was evangelizing. And then it, it was only like leveraging the social networks that then created that. But I was evangelizing for my customers, for the market, for the industry, and, and, and really like knowing the customer stories, knowing the customer journey, and being the best advocate of our customers. Um, that, that was what I was super passionate about. And um, not just, you know, my individual sales goals, uh, really being passionate about the ecosystem, right? Who our partners were, really passionate about who the analysts were, um, the, the people who had influence. So, so that, that came before, and that's, that'll lead me to the Marketo, right? Is it was that passion and that true desire and that love for B2B marketers and helping them enrich their careers. And, and so many of my early customers at Eloqua have gone on to be repeat CMOs. They were marketing analysts. They were, you know, they were marketing ops. They were, you know, demand generation folks. And so many of my early Eloqua customers are now repeat CMOs who have taken companies public, who have been part of large acquisitions, who have gone on to raise, you know, hundreds of millions of venture capital funding. And that, that passion for, and that um, knowledge of, and that number of years, and that, and that brand recognition in the industry is what led to the opportunity at Marketo. Marketo was at a point in time where Marketo had been taken private by Vista, and this is a PE firm, and they had taken Marketo private. And with PE, the goal is to, you know, take it back public or get acquired because that's how PE, you know, firms make their money. And so I knew there was going to be an exit. Um, and the CEO of Marketo, who I had listened to a podcast about his first 90 days at Marketo. And I had sent him a very personalized invite to connect using his words from the podcast. And he accepted my invite like this. It led to meeting him at Marketo's annual summit where I was able to get a speaking spot and then ultimately having brunch with him and the COO of Marketo and him recruiting me to be the chief evangelist at Marketo. And in that role, I would be evangelizing the customer, the ecosystem, the market, and also sit on his executive leadership team and bring all of that market ecosystem customer knowledge and, and, and like energy and, and perspectives into the operational, you know, the, 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 the operational leaders of the organization. I was not, he, he, I wouldn't come on board to Marketo as an evangelist 
until he had a CMO in the role. He, he, was, he was trying to find one person who could be the chief marketing office of the operator, who also could be the face of and be the evangelist for. And he realized that those needed to be two different people. And I knew that if I came on board and he didn't have a CMO in the role, that it might be that I needed to, to do that job and I would have fallen flat on my face. Like, there's no way I could do the CMO job. I can be the best advocate of and for the CMO, but I was, I was not the person for that job, if that makes sense. Hey, thanks for listening to Chief Evangelist. For so many reasons, podcasting is a great opportunity and channel for evangelism. If you've been thinking about a podcast or you want to shift production and promotion to a team that's especially evangelist friendly, check out ringmaster.com. Their Connect Engage Scale program is designed for evangelist-powered podcasting for software and tech companies in the growth stage. Again, you can learn more at ringmaster.com. They're also the team behind this podcast. Speaking of chief evangelist, let's get back to it. Yeah, absolutely it does. I mean, it goes back a little bit to your own default and I identify with it very, very much, which is why I grabbed onto it as soon as you said it is like the how and the why, the light bulb moments. Why should you care at all about the other nine modules in this course? Why should you care at all about changing your behavior? Why should you care at all about some of the recent history so that we can look forward to a better future? Um, all of these things that I think are, are natural and inherent and then tied into that a little bit too against kind of the what when, what tools and all of this, it starts to feel very, very operational. And so for you to run a marketing organization is a lot different than what you were recruited to do by your own story. And of course, it's a very familiar story. It's Dan Steinman's story at Gainsight, built the CS organization as chief customer officer and realized that it kind of outgrown his own personal interest and passion and was like, I don't want to operate this anymore, transition to um, what you actually do love and what you actually do care about and where you can be of highest value to the organization. What do you think was unique about uh, Marketo where, A, they were clever enough to see this difference as you did too, um, and B, where they recognized at the time that evangelism was something that was going to be value. I, what I heard in the way that you described it was that it would be just as much of value to the executive team as it was to the company by you going out to market with some of these ideas and messages and passion, et cetera. Like it seems somewhat forward looking or, or um, yeah. Did I observe that correctly? Yeah, no, you're right. And, and Steve Lucas, the CEO of Marketo, at the time, he was a very forward-looking person and leader, I should say. And he was he had the credibility at the board level to help them understand why at this point in time of the market maturity and the speed at which Marketo wanted to, to, to have an exit, um, that it would require some um, uh, higher leverage investments, not just more salespeople, more marketing campaigns, um, more partners, more events, more, 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 right? It's, it's looking at higher leverage. It, it also, I will say, um, because I had been part of, of Eloqua for so long and so um, competitive against Marketo, and, and that was a very well-known thing. Um, 
that for me to join Marketo after my my first, you know, real love and what we built at Eloqua uh, would be a signal to all Eloqua customers that the end had come and that what was was no more. What had been um, was not what um, it was. And so to give that that Eloqua um, customer market and even partners the signal that um, what we had built from a culture, from a customer centricity, from an employee centricity, from a partner centricity, from an ecosystem, right? An open ecosystem. And, and also from a product perspective, right? The innovation wasn't happening because the time was being spent integrating, not with the broader MarTech ecosystem, but integrating within the Oracle stack. And very few of the Alpha customers were actually using Oracle CRM. Like, they were using Salesforce. So it was, it was a, it was a signal to, to the market that, um, and this is terrible, but there was a, a code, um, a, a name for the campaign that I did. And it was, if you're drowning in a pit of aura shit, it's time to LO quit. And I know that sounds childish, but it certainly was like a rallying. If you're drowning in a pit, it's time to LO quit. And we're here for you. And look what Marketo has done. Like we've built, we've got Marketo champions. We have um, awards. We have uh, you just just all sorts of. We have we opened up our our Marketo University to uh, well beyond the Marketo customer base. I fought from that internally because I said we can't just be educating Marketo customers. We have to educate the broader market. Um, so anyways, I, I kind of got a little bit off, off track, I think, but that was, that was part of the r rationale and reasoning. Yeah, that's such an interesting pass there too, like the signal to the market that what was is no longer. And, you know, this, uh, it's such an interesting thing about the evangelist role in general. What, what title did you take at Marketo? I know you didn't, obviously did not take CMO. Um, what title did you take and how did you feel about that? Yeah, I screwed up because chief marketing evangelist was supposed to be my title. Chief was important because I was in the C-suite, part of Steve's ELT and reporting to the CEO. So chief was important to me. I was, and this was 2017, 18, I was very focused on this isn't just about marketing. This is about growth, right? And, and marketing, we're not just doing the ing, the marketing, but we're driving growth. We're driving revenue. And so I wanted growth to be in the title. And we had, we had, we had landed on initially advisor, chief growth advisor, but I was inside the organization. I was an employee and I was on the payroll and I got caught up in the ego of wanting officer, chief growth officer in my title. And Steve didn't care about the title. He's like, whatever, whatever makes you happy. And what I realized is it confused everyone, even my peers on Steve's team internally within the organization, because chief growth officer 
didn't mean anything. And it wasn't actually describing because I wasn't an operator. I didn't have the, the growth number. It was very confusing. And so I would have been actually way more effective and it would have been more obvious what I was there to do if I had actually taken the title that Steve wanted me to take, which was Chief Marketing Evangelist. 2020 hindsight. Here we are. So good. I want to, and I, I would love to ask you about advising, but if for, for the sake of time, I want to go straight to what's going on in the world in general. Should more organizations be thinking about appointing evangelists uh, in one way or another? If so, why? If not, why not? Or if maybe, then what are the factors? Like, what do you think is going on in the world right now? relative to your, and what I'm tapping into here is of course your history that you've been very generous in describing and sharing stories and providing context around, but also, you know, some of these concepts of, uh, living in market partnerships, ecosystem, I think B2B sales and marketing is changing. I think you've seen a lot of changes in your career so far. I think that gives you a deeper well to draw from in order to try to accurately paint a picture of the future. And so in, in that future, what do you, where does evangelism fit in it? Yeah, I think it's more important now than ever. And it is, it, it, it's more important based on what your buyers want. And they, they want to have connection. They want to have relevant conversations. Um, they're doing that today in communities of their peers who are um, in the same discipline, same stage or size of company, same industry, geography, um, trying to save this same, solve the same problems. And I, I believe living in market and living in community, um, having these conversations, connecting dots for for um, your customers and your partners. Uh, and that, 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 that's, that's hard to do as a salesperson, right? That the salespeople, there's just this natural, like, oh, wait, I'm going to be sold or, oh, wait, um, they're going to pitch their product. Right. And, and so it's, it, as a salesperson, it's hard to live in the communities where your buyers are actually having the frank conversations where they're there to learn, Right. And, you know, salespeople really, it, it really, we got to teach them how to be better teachers, right? And we need to help them learn more. Salespeople need to, to not just learn about their product, their company, but learn about their customers and have context around the customer's business. So that the, 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 having the evangelist who is really the, 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 the ambassador for the change and the the insatiable learner, the evangelist is is not the expert necessarily. Um, they are insatiable learner. They're passionate about teaching. They 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 like to take what they're hearing and 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 then make sense of that, and then take that to a broader audience. Right from a trust perspective, again your salespeople aren't going to get in those rooms. And so you've got to have someone who um, takes a broader, broader lens and who has more credibility. Yeah, really good. And I especially appreciate this idea for the, uh, of the ambassador for the change. A great tie back to the beginning of this conversation. 
do you have like five more minutes? Okay. So the big question that comes around a lot, you and I have talked about comp, but on the other side of comp is a company making investment uh, in this. I think certainly everyone that listens to this podcast and everyone that listens this deep into any of the episodes is probably on the same page as us. But from your perspective, because you are out in the market, you are out amid a variety of companies, you are around um, investment uh, and advising. I hear completely what you're saying about the wolf in sheep's clothing showing up in the community versus the sheep in sheep's the sheep showing up in the in the sheep's community uh, and the difference that that is and this idea of you know the insatiable appetite to learn and to share into the community but then also to share back into the organization to share into the sales team to share into the CS team to advise some of the marketing and product decisions um, I see the value of this. But you and I both know, and I, so this, you and I both know that there's not a great appetite to spend money on things that we can't prove the obvious immediate ROI of. And so do you feel like, because that's the tension against this imagined future of more evangelists living in market on behalf of the organization, but also on behalf of the change that they're uh, advocating for um, and learning about and advancing. Is this a temporary window that we're in that's just a function of macroeconomic trends and interest rates and kind of prevailing uh, cultural and emotional and, and social and business headwinds? Or is it simply a matter of finding leaders who understand value even where it cannot be obviously quantified in a layup fashion? Like, where are we with the investment in something that you and I both know has an incredible amount of value? And I think most people would recognize the value, but I think there's a leap of faith there that a lot of people are, the lack the courage to make, or maybe they lack the support to make. Like, I know I did a lot of talking there. What do you think about that? I, I think we are in a macroeconomic environment that makes it very difficult to um, invest new into this role, um, and, or continue to, um, invest in it. If there's already someone in the evangelist role within the organization, it, it, it is, if though, to the second point, if there is belief, but also, um, observation of how, an evangelist, an interaction or interactions with an evangelist, uh, not within your company, but for something else that you're interested in, um, if, 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 you, if you have experienced that, then you understand the intangible, right? This, this feeling, this belief, um, it, it, it is, you, you can't buy passion. You... If you if you're buying credibility, you're losing you're you're losing it at some point, right? So it, it requires this visionary thinking around where where we're headed, um, and this understanding of where we've been and where we are isn't going to take us to where we want to go. Um, I think your company has to be of uh, a decent size to and maturity to actually um, have this make sense. Ideally, your founder, um, your executives 
are are doing some of that, right? Some of the the evangelism. But it's very hard for a CEO who's building a company and scaling this asset organization to be living in market, to be in all of these communities where their buyers are. They're actually in the communities where other CEOs and founders are, right? So, so at, and also I'm not sure how um, uh, community building, um, there's a lot that has to be done on a, on a daily basis to do community building. And from a, from a founder, CEO, SaaS company, it's, it's hard to dedicate those resources to that. So I, I think that when, when times get um, better and there's more dollars available, uh, that we'll see, we'll see more coming around to the um, evangelist role. And as communities um, become increasingly more important and we're seeing companies build community before they build product, that's pretty darn cool. So you can't really, and, and categories, right? It's hard to build a category without evangelism. It's hard to build community without evangelism. And so as we see these things continue to change um, and, we, and we respond to them, we'll see it come back, I think. Yeah, I share that vision pretty much outright. Uh, and you reminded me of a book I read about freeing the founder from the sales role. I think there's also a story to be written about freeing the founder from the evangelist role at a certain point. You know, you you just have too many responsibilities. Jill, this has been an absolute joy. I so appreciate you spending this time with me. I will absolutely have you back because I look at my notes here on my screen. We barely covered, you know, but maybe half of the things that I thought would be fun to learn from you about. Uh, but before I let you go, I would love for you to share with me and everyone else, what is something that you evangelize in your own personal life? Uh, I, we talked about it off camera when I did this morning and I, um, I go to Orange Theory and I love, I love the workout at Orange Theory. Uh, there's a number of things that, that I like about it. One is, is really the, the feeling, right? The energy, uh, seeing a lot of the same people and watching their progress. But also, it isn't just linear going up and to the right. We get injured, right? We have car accidents. We have foot surgery. We have um, deaths in the family that take us away from, and, and we're there as a, as, as to support each other. The energy and the, and the accomplishment that I feel, the coaches are amazing. The gamification, the technology drives me to, to, to give more every time I walk in the door. Uh, so I would say Orange Theory is one of the things that I am passionate about and that I talk about all the time. Love it. Well done. Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best place to connect with you. True. Yeah, for sure. Okay. She is Jill Rowley spelled as it sounds R O W L E Y. And I am Ethan Butte. Last name is spelled B E U T E. Hit us up on LinkedIn. Jill, thank you so much for this time. I look forward to our next conversation. Ditto. Thanks Ethan. That wraps up this episode of chief evangelist. Thank you for joining us and thanks to Ringmaster Conversational Marketing for helping bring these episodes to you. With any thoughts or questions about the Chief Evangelist role, message me on LinkedIn. I'm Ethan Butte, E-T-H-A-N-B-E-U-T-E. -E -E. For show notes and more of these conversations, visit chiefevangelist.com.